It's FAQ NYC Off Cycle, where the New Yorkers podcast from the newsroom by and for New Yorkers, the city, steps back to take different and deeper looks into some of the things that are always happening here in the only place in the world. I'm Harry Siegel, and joining me right now to discuss his new graphic novel, Three Rocks, the story of Ernie Bushmiller, the man who created Nancy, is Bill Griffith, who, of course, is also the creator and maker of the syndicated strip, Long Running Zippy. Uh, Bill, thank you for joining us. Let's jump right in. Sure. There's a lot of uh, New York City newspaper history beautifully evoked in Three Rocks from a time when a cartoonist like Bushmiller could make a very good living, get a hero's welcome in Hollywood, I learned reading this when he arrived, to contribute movie gags. So maybe you could start by just explaining the title, what's drawn you over the decades to Nancy, and eventually to this book about her and her creator and his quest for the perfect gag, starting with the final panel or snapper and working backward to illustrate the path there. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, sure. Um, three rocks um, as different different meanings. The first one comes literally from the Nancy strip. When Nancy or Sluggo were walking along the sidewalk, behind them, might be one tree, uh, a, a building in the distance, um, a bush to the left, and three perfectly hemispheric rocks, just in the kind of the mid mid range of the landscape. Um, occasionally, he would put one rock, rarely two rocks, but three rocks was his favorite. There's something very powerful about the th- the three image. You know, we have it all the way going into religion and everything else. Um, the three is kind of a magic number. Um, it also indicates, I think, the kind of um, boiled down to the essence nature of the Nancy Strip. Um, when you read a Nancy Strip, you're not in getting involved in the artwork in the way that you might with Crazy Cat or Little Nemo, any of the classic strips, or any of the later strips, any of the adventure strips, um, Flash Gordon or, you know, you know, Steve Canyon, all the great adventure strips from the past. And that's and that and those strips you're actually getting involved in the artwork in a similar way to to the way you would read you would you would see a movie. You're pulled into this world and it's fully detailed. Um no, not with Ernie Bushmiller. <laughs> Ernie is saying this is this is not about adventure. It's not even about storytelling. It's about the nature of a comic strip. Um, the nature of a comic strip is the kind of uh, the context or the underpinning of every single Nancy strip. He is telling you that what he's going to show you is something so boiled down and basic that it's it's harder to not read a Nancy than to read a Nancy. So in, in other words, the minute you see a Nancy comic strip, you've already read it. You can't say that about almost any other strip. Everything you need to know, including the punchline, which he called the snapper, is apparent immediately in a Nancy strip. Um, This happens at any reduction. You can reduce a Nancy strip to the size of a small postage stamp, and it will still operate. It will still function. So this is a very um, uh, tempting area for me to get into as a cartoonist. Because you don't you don't just talk about the characters and the humor. 
You're talking about the very nature of comics when you look at Nancy. So some of the book is, it's recursive in some of the ways you're talking about it. Maybe Nancy in some ways is the platonic ideal of a strip that, that is still recognizable no matter how, uh, how much it's shrunk down or whatever else. Can you talk about what first led you long ago to Nancy um, a little bit, maybe just about the, the, the strip for people who don't know it, or maybe just know this very different present version that, that the pseudonymous person, Olivia James is doing. Um, and, and I know, interestingly, it started from another strip that somebody else was doing and Bushmiller inherits. There's one character from that who sort of lives on very incongruously mm-hmm. in Nancy, but there's this fascinating interplay between the creator and the characters and I suppose the intellectual property and how different people pick that up and use it or misuse it. Um, and I'd love to sort of hear, hear your thoughts on that as, as some of this is, is in the book, um, in, in interesting ways. Um, you know, Fritzy Ritz is something very different. Yeah. Uh, Ernie Bushmiller was the youngest cartoonist in the history of comics, even to this day to be given, in his case, given a daily comic strip. That happened in 1925. He was 19 years old. Um, There was a very popular comic strip at the time. He was working for the, in those days, cartoonists worked for individual newspapers. Syndicates existed, but cartoonists still pretty much worked in what they called the bullpen. The bullpen of a daily newspaper was the art department. All the cartoonists, the illustrators, they were all in one big room. You know, there was a lot of, you know, a lot of partying going on, I'm sure. But so Ernie was a copy boy at the New York World. And every time that he took something to the bullpen, he became fixated on looking at the work of the cartoonists who were working right in front of him. So he, at one point, he walked up to one of the cartoonists who's not not a famous guy, so it doesn't matter what name I say. Um, and he he was just staring and the cartoonist noticed him and he said, so you want to, you want to be a cartoonist kid? And Ernie said, yes, yes, I sure do, sir. Yes, sir. And then the guy said, well, then you need to learn the basics. And Ernie said, you mean like uh, writing and penciling and inking? And the guy said, no, erasing. (laughs) And he handed him a gum eraser and said, erase the pencil lines around my finished ink strip so it can go down to the compositor and get ready for print. So for the first couple of years of his copyboy existence, can you imagine a better education and learning what comics are all about? He was erasing the pencil lines of about a dozen cartoonists, some of whom were were famous, and, and whose work was, you know, he admired greatly. He's given the original art and, a, and an eraser. <laughs> um, there's no better education. There's no better education for a writer than to read. There's no better education for a cartoonist than to read comics. Okay, so he was reading comics every day. For, for, for those of us who haven't done this, I, I'm trying to think this through right now. It, how much care is involved in that sort of erasing when you're removing the pencil marks to have the final ink there? I'm wondering if this is also a sort of working backward process, like starting from the punchline in some sense, or if it's just bulk work that somebody has to do. It's the final. It's the final process of of finishing a piece of black and white pen and ink art to be reproduced. If you don't erase the pencil lines, 
in those days, before computers, before scanning, it, it goes it goes to a, a copy camera. The copy camera takes a picture of it. The copy camera will take a picture that will show the pencil lines because the pencil lines are in kind of a, a light gray. It'll pick that up. And the end result will be a very ugly looking drawing with all kinds of you know, preliminary lines and lines going outside of black lines. So once you're, this is true for me today, every day, once I finish a strip and it's, I know that the ink is completely dry, then I, I use a kneaded eraser because that does a much better job. And I just erase all the pencil lines. So there's nothing left but the black line art. It's not a creative process. It's just work. In fact, I agree with this guy who advised Ernie to learn erasing. It actually, it's work. You have to be very careful and get rid of every little piece of pencil line. And so that was Ernie's education. That was his cartoon. He didn't go to cartooning school. <laughs> he he erased the pencil lines of a dozen cartoonists every day for a couple of years. Then one day, the cartoonist who was doing a very popular strip at the New York World called Fritzy Ritz. Fritzy, in, that, in, in Fritzy's um, identity at that time, she was kind of like a flapper, a kind of a 1920s flapper. She was, you know, she was dressed in um, modern clothing. She had a short haircut. She had a whole series of boyfriends. She had no interest in marriage or family. She had a lot of adventures, a very popular strip. And all of a sudden, the guy who did it, um, Dick Whittington, was offered a job with a different strip at King Features, <laughs> my syndicate, and a lot more money. So he took it. So he went to the editor of the world and said, I'm leaving. And they said, oh, my God, we can't let Fritzy Ritz die. And then Dick Whittington said, um, well, I've been kind of mentoring a, a young cartoonist here named Ernie Bushmiller. And I think he's he's a good guy to take over the Fritzy strip. So that that's what happened at the age of 19, just to to save the, you know, the income that was coming to the paper, um, he took over the Fritzy strip. Fritzy then um, was in his hands. It took, what did it take? It took until, until 1933 to, to, uh, for Nancy to enter the strip. So for all those first few years, it was all Fritzy. And he had to do what it amounted to what they call a continuity strip, meaning each day is a different um, aspect of a, a long storyline. He never was comfortable with that. He always was trying to stop that. And his editor was always saying, no, no, that's what people like about Fritzy. You know, she goes to Hollywood. She has a, a boyfriend. She dumps the boyfriend. She tries to get into movies. Uh, Ernie wanted to make it a gag strip. Not until Nancy appeared could he really do that. So he introduces Nancy as a character in this very popular strip with the glamorous pinup yeah. lapper at the center of it. Mm -hmm. And then at some point, Nancy becomes the focus. Well, first she became the niece. She walked in as the niece, yes. But but Fritzy never goes away, even after the script becomes Nancy, right? Yeah. Fritzy, Fritzy stayed until 1966. <laughs> um, 
And the Nancy strip followed the rules of a lot of, um, you know, comics about families. Um, they never they never age. The only strip to really age was Gasoline Alley. Gasoline Alley by Frank King. The characters literally aged year by year, where, where a character that was introduced as a baby in the 20s, in the 40s, was a grown man. That was the only strip to really do that. It was an amazing accomplishment. Anyway, so Fritzy, Fritzy never aged. Fritzy was ostensibly the aunt of Nancy. And Nancy was introduced mostly just to shake things up. Ernie thought uh, that the flapper, um, you know, the flapper trope was getting tired and he had to do something to some, some, he said, he said, I think he said to his wife, I need a mischief maker. <laughs> and I think that his wife, Abby, they both kind of came up with Nancy in a way. They both sort of thought, what about if it was a, a, a niece, a little, you know, feisty little girl who causes problems for Fritzy? And that happened in 1933. The, the introductory strip of Nancy shows her sitting, well, not the, not the very first, but the first week or so, shows her sitting, by the way, on top of three rocks, <laughs> just posed on three rocks. I'm not quite sure what he was trying to <laughs> do with that. I think he just thought it was um, a funny kind of, you know, portrait. So in 1933, Nancy comes. And by 1938, this strip is no longer called Fritzy Ritz. It's called Nancy. Um, uh, Fritzy was a pinup, a pinup, uh, like you say, a glamorous pinup figure, um, which, of course, is jarring in the sense that now she's supposed to be a, a a parental figure to Nancy. And she is a parental figure occasionally, and Nancy rebels against her. But there's no there's no husband on the scene, and it's not really a nuclear family. And this is this is something that happened with a lot of daily strips about children, um, where to introduce um parents into the strip means that sex had happened. So that it implied obviously, that if the child's biological parents were characters, that they had had sexual relations and produced this cartoon child. <laughs> uh, daily newspapers at that time thought that was, uh, you know, a, a bridge too far that would that would get them in trouble. I'm not sure they were right, but that's what they did. Um, there was a, a there was a, a kind of a myth going around and it still goes around today that daily newspaper comics are for children. That's absolutely not true, and it never has been. Only a handful of daily strips have ever been aimed at children. 90% of them have been aimed at adults of varying degrees of sophistication. <laughs> um, so Nancy Nancy entered kind of just to shake things up. That's, that's why he brought her in. And um, his readers started wanting more of it. They wanted more of Nancy, and so by 1933, that was all. That was that was how he um, oriented the strip. And Fritzy then appears to my eyes and to many people to be anachronistic. Why is there a tall, shapely woman who is clearly taking poses as she speaks, pin-up poses? And is sometimes shown in underwear, 
and sometimes in semi-sexual situations. Why is she in this trip? I posit in my book, I have no direct evidence, that Ernie would have been called in at some point and the the editor of the, uh, his, his managing editor at the syndicate would say, I see you've been not doing a lot with Fritzy lately. And Ernie would say, well, yeah, she's not that important and she doesn't quite go with uh, the Nancy and Sluggo world. And then, he, then the, the managing editor would say, Ernie, your strip appeals to two different audiences. It's it's eye candy for the men, and it's humor for everybody else. Fritzy brings sex into the strip. Please don't drop Fritzy. At which point he he just agreed. Um, I think he had fun with that, um, given that he knew it was there for that reason. I think he understood there was a kind of surreal level. Why is this, like I say, why why is this pinup girl um, suddenly walking around in this Nancy and Sluggo universe? They don't, you know, it's like um, the old phrase, when worlds collide, you know, when worlds collide, everything falls apart. But actually, when worlds collide in an ancestry, it just makes it all the more interesting. And it gives an extra charge of both surrealism and sex to the strip which it didn't have without Fritzy. I think Fritzy was actually quite necessary all throughout those years. So bouncing around a little here, and I want to make sure that we talk a bit about New York City and its newspapers, which it beautifully evoked in the book, and all of the New York cartoonists who end up uh, where you are, uh, actually, or, or in the state where you are, uh, in yeah. Connecticut, which is fascinating. Uh, but before that, uh, you know, there's all these interesting high art and low art questions around uh, cartooning and strips and all that. And I was hoping you could talk a bit about Bushmiller's early education, his interests, and how you found those. And perhaps also in the course of that, I have a tendency to mush a few things together. The the other Nancys that occur from John Stanley to Andy Warhol mm -hmm. and the different ways this, this character manifests. Yeah. Well, Ernie, um, fell into Daly's newspaper syndication by accident, as we've noted. Um, and once he did after a few years, this is in the late, the late 1920s, he felt that he, he needed to improve his drawing skills. Um, he felt, you know, he had the basic chops down, but he needed literally to improve like figure drawing. So rather than, you know, he couldn't, he couldn't go to college. That would be to take, take all of his time and it would be too expensive, but there were schools around New York, like the art students league. He didn't go there, but there was one up on 94th street and, um, I think Amsterdam Avenue, um, where it was it was a non-degree giving institution in which you could register and just go in and do figure drawing. So he decided to take take advantage of that. For two years, he did that 
every week, and he never told anybody. He never told his family. He was still living with his parents at the time. He didn't tell them. He didn't tell his sisters. He didn't tell the syndicate. He just wanted to hone his drawing skills. Strangely, and this was like golden for me, <laughs> who does he become friends with in the, the, the rooms of this, of this school doing figure drawing? Reginald Marsh, the kind of prime example of the uh, 1930s so-called, you know, Ashcan school or, or social realism school, um, whose subject matter was New York City, everything about Coney Island, the Bowery, burlesque. This was Reginald Marsh's meat and potatoes. He had uh, Reginald Marsh, you know, the Daily News ran features of yeah. his illustrations under under a couple of different names yeah. that, that yeah. were awesome back when it really was New York's picture paper early yes. on. Yes. Uh, Reginald Marsh had two single panel running, not strips, they were just little little slices of life. Um, and yes, yeah, so he was working for the Daily News. This was before he was well known, before his, you know, his paintings were famous. So he and Ernie... <laughs> you know, somehow became friends and they would go to um, burlesque houses together and they would sketch the strippers. There are very few examples of Ernie's work at this time left, but there are two of them and they're beautiful watercolors. He did wonderful figure drawing and the, the stripper images are not just great drawing, they're, they're you know, they're erotically powerful and they were all done with reginald marsh sitting by his side <laughs> very very strange um i had access to ernie's right hand man for the last 12 years of his life a man named jim carlson when i asked jim how he would like him to be described in my book you know is his right hand man a good thing and he said no no say best friend and then he proved to me that they were best friends over a period of many interviews. And so I'm bringing this up because in regard to Reginald Marsh, Jim Carlson told me that, that Jim had mentioned to Ernie in his later years, what was your friendship about Reginald Marsh all about? And Ernie said, I, I, I choose not to discuss it. He was a sniveling little bastard. <laughs> so their friendship ended. Um, in some um, rocky, horrible way that I, I, I couldn't research any further, but I had to put it in there. It's called Reginald Marsh, a sniveling little bastard. I don't know what that means, but there you go. There's Ernie, and there Ernie with the quintessential New York painter, Reginald Marsh. Um, yeah, Ernie's career until he moved to Connecticut, which was in 1952. He lived where he was born. He lived in the Bronx. He lived in a series of apartments. He got on the subway and came to the Daily News Building, where he had a drawing table. For a number of years, he worked in the Daily News Building until it became more like a, a party scene. And he he thought he, he wouldn't get enough work done, so he were, started working at home. Um, but New York was essential to him. When he was working at the Daily News, often at lunch, fairly close by, there was a bar restaurant called The Inkwell. 
the inkwell was where all the cartoonists went for drinks or after work or lunch. The entire length of the bar behind the bar was a big mural with dozens and dozens of drawings by all the different cartoonists who frequented that place. And um, a guy who did a great book with his friend Paul Karasik, Mark Newgarden, and 2017, Mark came out. Mark and Paul came out with a book called "How to How to Read Nancy." In their research, they found out about Ernie and the Inkwell. So I was privy to a bunch of photographs taken, you know, just candid photographs taken of the cartoonists, um, you know, hanging out at the Inkwell, you know, trading jokes, drawing drawing on the walls. And I decided I couldn't resist something, another New York thread. <clears throat> My first graphic novel was called Invisible Ink, and it was the story of my mother's 16-year secret affair with a then-famous cartoonist. Okay, that name, that that man's name doesn't ring any bells today. His name was Lawrence Larrier. He was primarily a gag cartoonist. He was also the author of about 12 um, mystery books, all of all of whom had a cartoonist detective <laughs> they're they're worth reading his his gag stuff is not worth looking at much but he was a working cartoonist he worked for the very first comic book format comics in the um early to mid 30s and he tried like hell to get a daily strip going he tried four times each time he got as far as actually you know, starting it with a syndicate, and then it, it died a horrible death six months later. He just didn't have it in him. So I have a scene in my Bushmiller book where Lawrence Larrier walks up to Ernie at the Inkwell and asks him, what's the secret of breaking into the daily newspaper business? And Ernie tells him, dumb it down, keep it simple. Because Larrier accurately, historically accurately, tells him what his ideas are, and they're incredibly complicated. They're, they just go all over the place. He puts in adventure and humor and, you know, scenes in jungles and the Far East and a, a little kid who has an IQ of 160. And Ernie listens to this guy and he says, you know, stop, halt, <laughs> keep it simple. That's the secret, keep it simple. So it, it was a way of getting Ernie in that kind of mode of kind of like almost like a teacher and um and the inkwell it was on third avenue and there's the third avenue l um i love drawing old new york ernie ernie was a born and bred bronx kid but he spent his all his professional life uh, until he moved to connecticut he spent he spent it in, in the city so there, there are a few particular images i want to touch on that, that are pretty awesome so you mentioned the mural, the inkwell. There was going to be a Time magazine feature, um, which I learned about reading this. Life magazine. At the Lambs Club. Yeah. Life magazine, of course. Yeah. yeah the, the, the photo magazine, um, which involves, you'll tell the story, but, but to me, this just really drove home how iconic and recognizable a character like Nancy was in a way that, that, it's almost hard to imagine now just just uh thinking about 
what they were after and and how this was portrayed. And I was hoping you could talk a little about that and okay. uh, the Warhol version that uh, I, I don't think actually well, no, was it, finished. It was, and I'll tell you why I, I know it was finished. Okay. Um, the, first, the um, the Life magazine photo spread. This was in uh, uh, late 40, 49, I think. And it was at the um, at, at the the venue of the the National Cartoonist Society. Ernie was one of the founding members of the National Cartoonist Society, which was basically a men's club. There were a few women, but it was mostly guys. And they had meetings, and you know they 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 did. It was a club. <laughs> they were they were doing it for fun. Um, but one day, a pen company. Uh, uh, proposed the idea. This was when ballpoint pens were just being introduced. Okay, so ball, the ballpoint pen was a new technology, and so the ballpoint pen manufacturer said, "What if all you cartoonists got together for a, one of your meetings, and um, we would provide uh, shapely young ladies in white bathing suits, and you would each draw your character on their bathing suit, which they would be wearing at the time." Of course, you know, being the late forties, um, um, this was not met with with um, cries of of sexism. Um, it was agreed to. <clears throat> so there are these photographs because it was covered by Life magazine. Life magazine had uh, in the back of each issue, they had something called "Life Goes to a Party." It wasn't always a party, but the idea was something entertaining where the life photographer would show up and document some event that was, you know, fun. A lot of them were about Hollywood. So a life magazine photographer came to this event. Ernie came. All the major newspaper daily cartoonists came with their ballpoint pens at the ready. And there are all these photographs of them drawing their characters on these, you know, models whose bathing suits were white um, for the purpose. Um, I make no judgment about this. It just happened. Okay, so I drew it. <laughs> what I tried to do was I tried to get a little bit of the feeling of what those women felt as this was happening. I have two of them talking and one of them saying, could you, could you believe that guy that does Kerry Drake? He pressed so hard, he hurt my ribs. And the other one says, well, don't forget, we're, the, the drinks are free and it's all for Life magazine. And, you know, the, I, I, try, I had to get something in from their point of view. Otherwise, I would just be participating in the, you know, the good old boy sexist stuff. Anyway, so. Um, so to my surprise, outside of the good old boy sexist stuff, you have a wonderful series of panels where you're just combining Warhol aphorisms with Nancy panels, in effect. And and the book beautifully reuses some of Bush Miller's Nancy material. Some of it is just scripts that are there, but but some of it is th those sorts of juxtapositions. And then on the next page, like very much to my surprise, which I touched on earlier, there's this Bond with Teller department store window with what I thought was um, an unfinished uh, Nancy painting that's very uh, like almost Lichtenstein-ish and no Fritzy Ritz in it. And I was hoping you could talk about that. I, I, I'm pretty sure it's 1961. Correct me if I'm wrong. Anyway, uh, so Warhol in 1961 had not broken out into being a pop artist. He was still a working um, illustrator doing, doing newspaper ads and magazine ads. And doing 
windows, the front windows on the sidewalk for the Bonwit Teller newspaper, uh, Bonwit Teller department store. So they said they wanted him to do a series of backdrop paintings, not full paintings, backdrops that would be different famous comics. Nancy was one of them. Dick Tracy was one. There's no record. Nothing has been, nothing has remained of any of these paintings except the Nancy one. But there were about 12 of them. The reason Nancy, the one in my book that you see, the reason it looks unfinished is because it was to be placed in the back and in front of the painting, hiding big chunks of the painting, were things that were for sale, clothing, um, whatever the, the th it was a winter theme. So snowsuits and sleds and all kinds of, you know, scarves and jackets and coats. So there was no need for Warhol to finish the part of the canvas that, that looks empty. That's why it looks empty. He, he it would be blocked by stuff right in front of it. So the, what would be the point of putting all that work into something nobody would ever see? That's why it looks unfinished. But yeah, Warhol, you know, later um, when Roy Lichtenstein's pop art paintings were completely and, and almost only based on comic imagery, Warhol felt that was his thing, but Lichtenstein had stolen it from him. He was all ready to, in effect, do the same thing. He was all ready to do big, you know, single panel blowups of romance comics and war comics and the whole thing. And suddenly Lichtenstein did it first. <laughs> it's interesting skilling the concept of what you could call skilling, but th that might be another. Uh... Yeah. Well, they call it they call it appropriating, or they call it um, transformational use. That's the legal term. Um, I I don't call it stealing. I I call it transformational use. But why not acknowledge where you got the the use from? Lichtenstein never acknowledged it when anybody came. They they would show him the exact panel in the 1940s comic that he had swiped, and he would ignore that. He wouldn't. He publicly never said a word. I guess he was worried his sales would plummet if he was to say, yeah, I copied it. Um, I, I I just did a mashup of high art, low art, and my prices just went down. <laughs> oh, <laughs> yeah, risky stuff. So, so at one point in the book, you quote Bushmiller saying, hit me, I've never gotten an idea from real life. And in your illustration there, there's a picture of Sluggo, who I, I realize we haven't mentioned at all to this point. I feel guilty <laughs> about that. But uh, in the 1960s, at least, Bushmiller, who, who's in Connecticut, who has a conservative view of pop culture and is doing what is an abstracted strip. It's a strip about comics, not a strip about life, you say more eloquently at one point in the book. Um, but he has, you know, he's got these uh, uh, hippies and beats and freaks who show up just to sort of be the, the butt of the gag and to yeah. have a little of social commentary in there. So you, you mentioned the Zen and Nancy briefly before you, you come out of like an underground cartooning scene. And I'm hoping you can explain how it is that something that seems so mainstream and vanilla in certain ways and from someone who, who is so critical of sort of countercultural stuff. Uh, how it is people come to realize and appreciate this Zen and how those parts maybe do or don't 
fit together as you see them? Well, I think actually Bushmiller's gags that involved, um, I'll put these all all these categories together because he put them all together. Bums. So in other words, the old word for homeless people, bums. Um, beatniks, hippies, and even beyond hippies, you know, counterculture or whatever. Um, yippies. Yippies, yippies just yeah. used to throw back. He there. was aware of all of that. Um, he was described to me by someone who, who knew him as uh, a Republican um, in the, in the old, old fashion, the old style Republican. In other words, socially conservative, but not necessarily, uh, I mean, politically conservative, but not necessarily socially conservative, which describes Connecticut too, also for many, many years. They would always elect a, uh, uh, a progressive senator or two and then a a conservative uh, governor. <laughs> that was kind of the way they were. Um, and so I think Ernie actually felt some sort of affection for all these characters. I don't think he was lampooning them or making fun of them. I think he was pulling them into his into his world to use for gags, sometimes very obvious gags, which of course is Ernie's um, bread and butter, obvious gags. Um, but I don't think he was trying to be um, satirical necessarily towards them. He was, um, he was, it, it was irresistible. Well, here he is in the 1960s, a conservative guy with a long, you know, career behind him, and suddenly when he goes into New York, he sees um, beatniks, and then he sees hippies. To him, these were just these were material these were these were this was a source of material why not use them um there's nothing vicious or hateful about the way he did his stuff it's a little it's funny the way he conflates bums hippies and beatniks all together that um you know they're all he he he, he recognizes they're all antisocial and antisocial is that's good funny material anything anything antisocial is is humor gold um, so he did it. And, you know, he lived, um, he lived in, in Connecticut. He lived in a place where he wouldn't normally come across these people, but everybody else was talking about them. He watched TV, he watched the news. You have to remember something about Ernie. Ernie was a self-made intellectual. That's what I would call him. When I first gave the first thought as to who Ernie was, when I began to kind of get into his stuff in the seventies. Like um, I read it as a kid and then I kind of let go of it. And then back when I started in the seventies again, when I got back to it, I thought there's a lot more here than, than just a simple strip. So I started to appreciate it in the way I do now, but I had no, no awareness of who Ernie Bushmiller was. There was there. Were, he hardly gave any interviews. There was no internet. Um, there was one little bio that came out of the National Cartoonist Society. That was it. So I figured he, the strip had a kind of folk art quality, a kind of folk art genius quality. So he must be kind of a folk artist. Very far from the truth. Absolutely far from the truth. When I asked his assistant, the, the one who gave me these wonderful interviews and to, to, to make this book work, uh, I said, what was Ernie's, what was his favorite music? 
And Jim Carlson said immediately, he said, Fat Swaller. I said, I said, what my head is spinning. What? Fat Swaller? Ernie Bushmiller liked Fat Swaller more than any other music? Yes. Okay. Who is his favorite painter? Who is his favorite artist? Diego de Velasquez. What? <laughs> the 16th century Spanish court painter? I never could quite get that one understood. But it said another thing, a surprising thing about Ernie to me. Who is his favorite humorist? S.J. Perelman. One of the more you know um, intellectual New Yorker um, writers that you could imagine was his favorite humorist. And the list went on. It was this the list of a man who was absolutely um, far from the folk artist that I once thought he might be. So we are running short on time here. I want to uh, tease because it's always interesting talking about uh, about images and 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 comics and, and a book that is, of course, combining words and images in all the, the interesting and challenging ways. But if you'd like to know about uh, Samuel Beckett's alleged correspondence with Ernie Bushmiller <laughs> about cartoons, there's a really interesting section of uh, Three Rocks that's about that. Um, Bill, thank you again for coming on and joining us. Um, what, if anything, having gone through this, and of course, it's always at a weird lag when you work on a book for years, put in the time, do the research, compose it, frame it, change it. And then, you know, months after you finish all that, it's published and out in the world and you're talking about it. But um, what would you like to impress on people who might be interested or who might sort of remember Nancy or know some new or different iteration of Nancy about what is worth engaging with, with her character and her creator? Uh, for the Nancy Curious, let's say. Okay, well, I won't aim my my advice to the gum chewers, which was Ernie's description for his his readers. I, I will aim it at uh, people a little bit, a bit above that level. Uh, imagine the difference between, um, I mean, Charlie Chaplin and Buster Keaton. Okay, Charlie Chaplin, his short movies, not his later odd odd movies all his short movies what comes across is he wants you to like him it's it was a david and goliath story in every one of his early one reelers and two reelers and he wants you to like him he wants you to sympathize and empathize with him okay buster keaton comes along a little bit later and um he doesn't care if you like him or not his character is has a deadpan emotionless expression and what Buster Keaton is there to do is to entertain you in the th most thrilling way possible in what movies can do, silent movies. It's all about the structure and the, the idea that a, that a movie can create a humorous thing, a humorous moment that no other medium can do. There's a famous scene in which there's a windstorm happening and everything around Buster Keaton gets blown away by the wind. Finally, the wind calms down and he's standing in the center focus of the frame and this, the facade of a building is behind him and it suddenly falls down right on top of him, you think. But instead, he escapes destruction because it falls right through a window in the building 
right where he's standing. So he comes right out of the window. He pops right back up. Um, so that's that's Buster Keaton. That's that's um, that's Ernie that's Ernie Bushmiller. He wants you to um, laugh at what comics can be. That's all he wants. He doesn't want you to love Nancy or Sluggo. He just wants you to laugh at what comics can be. Griffith, thank you again for uh, coming on. Uh, the book is Three Rocks, the story of Ernie Bushmiller, the man who created Nancy. Uh, really appreciate it. Check it out. Glad, glad to be of service. <laughs> F-A-Q. This has been FAQ NYC. We're a part of the city. A nonprofit, nonpartisan newsroom dedicated to hard hitting reporting that serves the people of New York. Our work is freely available to everyone at thecity.nyc and is supported by listeners and readers like you. Go to thecity.nyc/slash give if you'd like to pitch in. We also receive support from PNT Knitwear, an independent bookstore, cafe, and event space on Manhattan's Lower East Side with a podcast studio that can be freely reserved for community use. We're a proud member of the Brickhouse Cooperative of independent journalists, critics, and artists. Find it all at popula.com. And are affiliated with the Colin Powell School at CUNY's City College, where Chrissy Greer is one of the inaugural fellows. Our host for this episode was Harry Siegel, who's also our executive producer. And I'm our engineer, Adam Kimera. A special thank you to our guest, Bill Griffith, author of Three Rocks, the story of Ernie Bushmiller, the man who created Nancy. And thank you, listener, for joining us and making it this far. Be kind, be cool, and we'll be back soon with more.